Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. <laughs> good morning, my beautiful goddess. Good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. Good morning to you, kind sir. I love Wednesdays. <laughs> I love seeing you. Sometimes I get a little, today's, a, I'm a little overwhelmed with the amount of topics we would like to cover. So we'll just uh, see how it goes. Yeah. So let's start by catching up. Um, real quickly, last a uh, couple podcasts ago, I mentioned if anybody could look up what fell swoop meant. <laughs> by the way, I was trying to look it up while you were talking, but it didn't work out. So yeah, oh, tell me. Our friend Raquel looked it up and it says this fell was once used to mean a savage or cruel action while swoop to find a hard hit. Think bird of prey swooping down and ransacking a nest in one blow. Probably originated from Shakespeare's Macbeth mm -hmm. where the playwright likens the murder of Macduff's wife and children to a hawk swooping down on defenseless prey. Thank you, Raquel. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> you know, these things, they all have origins, and the origins are actually sometimes quite interesting. So, true. and a lot of them lead back to Shakespeare. Uh, okay, I, so what's going I, on? I noticed that you're wearing your Daily Show t shirt. We'll get and, to that. We'll get to and that. Since, uh, since we last um, saw each other, you went to New York. So, yeah, I want to talk about that in a minute, but uh, okay. well, well, I can talk about the, the the good part first. Okay. And it was it was it was a blast. It was really a blast. Um, they reached out to me like Friday, the week before, mm -hmm. and I had to shuffle some things around, and I got to go to New York. And it, you know, I was with my family over Thanksgiving weekend because uh, my son Max got married, and so everybody was there, and I saw Maddie. But then Maddie went back to New York and then I got to go to New York and her birthday was the same night that I recorded on the show, which was November. That. She and her friend Connor got to come back to the green room and uh, all credit and, and kudos to Michelle Wolf for taking the last night of hosting uh, of her uh, pot, of her podcast, of her daily show <laughs> appearance and to spend it on something that she's so passionate about. And the middle segment she did, long story short, was absolutely amazing. And I was honored to be on there and to be. Yeah. And if, if you guys haven't seen it, um, the long story short, and then also the clip um, or the segment with Dr. Stu, you can go on YouTube and search. Um, what date was it, Stu? November 30th. November 30th. And yeah, I mean, I think she did an amazing job covering so much of like what, um, business of being born goes into, you know, just the history and all of that. She did a, a, an amazing job. So it's a great resource for us to be able to share with people as well. And the reel that she put out um, with me and her talking has over 2.6 million plays. So uh, you had a, you had a, a birth story to tell us. Um, I have a couple things I'd like to, to share um, with you guys today. Um, one is, I thought this was really interesting. I shared this with you, but um, I got a letter from uh, the local people here in Santa Barbara letting me know that um, 
I am responsible in making sure that my clients register their home births. And so um, I guess there was a law passed back in October changing um, the requirement from 10 days to 21 days to support um, cultural rituals and making sure that people have enough time. Well, 21 days probably isn't still enough time when you are recovering. But um, so they sent me a letter and told me that if in my area, if my clients don't register their birth by 21 days, I am required to come in on the 21st day and complete the registration. And if I fail to do so, they will um, report me to the medical board. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, why are they, why are their panties in such a bunch about this? Because when I was in California, when I was in LA, um, you know, I would tell people, oh, it says 10 days on there, but don't worry about it. You know, cause I didn't even register one of my births for a year because I was going through some, my breakup and stuff. And had a bunch of other things I had to do, but I always tell people, please do it before a year because then it becomes really a pain in the ass. But, um, you know, don't worry about it. And they never followed up. It was never a big thing. But for some reason, things are really ramping up. Like I also got a letter from the um, part of the, I don't know which which part of the government it is that reached what out to me. What difference does it make? having to do with a newborn screen that one of my clients had registered their birth, but they wrote on the form that they had declined the newborn screen, but I hadn't sent in the actual signature from the client yet. They followed up with me and my assistant five times. And I said, I'm not going to see this woman again until six weeks. She doesn't live near me. I will send it in. Um, but like I maybe because it's all electronic now and they can cross-reference stuff. But this woman forwarded me an email having to do with this. And I don't know that she knew that I could see some responses that she had sent to someone else. And um, one of the things she says Please see question in regard to sovereign citizen below would like some clear guidance. So it seems like some of the families that are birthing outside of the hospital, um, there's a recent increase of some home birth parents who do not want to come in and register their home births. Some have mentioned sovereign citizen as an option. We are aware that it is still the responsibility of the midwives to register the birth and wondering if there's any other county having the same issue and how we were handling this. What are the consequences if the midwives do not come in and register births? Who wrote so that? this is um I'm not gonna mention her name. Oh, um, one of you, one of your colleagues wrote that. Okay, got it. No, that's from um Vital Records, Santa Barbara Vital Records. So how did um, you get a hold how did you get a hold of that? Because she forwarded me an email um, uh, with one of her colleagues and that was in there. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm seeing I'm seeing the connection here and why they're getting so um, controlling. So, um, you know, what it made me think about, Stu, this morning as I was reflecting on it is going back to that thing that we've talked about and others that have written in have talked about is like being beholden to the state rather than to my clients, you know, and this is a perfect example of how they are turning the screws on midwives. And one of the emails at the top, she said, no one else seems to have an issue with this. And I was like, 
well, I don't know what to tell you. I'm I'm one of those rebellious ones that's like looking a little deeper and wondering why is this so important that our I mean, why is it so important that we register the birth? Because bean counters because bean counters need to count beans. <laughs> it's their job. Okay. I mean, I don't want to get really dramatic here, but you know, they're just they're just doing their job, Bliss. All right. That somebody created this job is the real question. Yeah, it just to me, it's like most of my clients want to get a birth certificate. They want to be able to get tax benefits. They want to be able to get a passport and travel. Like they don't if need they don't, someone. Why should that be? Why should that be the government's concern? Exactly. That's what I'm I mean, wondering. We have, we have, we have, you know. Again, there's no logic to it because we have hundreds of thousands of people coming over the border that they have no records about of anything. And they're not too concerned about those. So why are they suddenly concerned about a baby that's born in California or in a certain county in California? And what I find fascinating is they put a deadline on you, Bliss. It used to be 10 days. I remember in Ventura County, it was 10 days. And now at least they gave you 21 days. How nice of them to do that. Yeah. But imagine, imagine turning that around and saying, requesting something from the government and saying, I'm giving you 21 days to do it <laughs> or I'm not paying taxes anymore or, or you're, or I'm going to, you're, you're going to lose your job. Right. It doesn't work both ways. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to be working for us. Right. Well, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> no, it isn't. And it's only getting worse. Despite people waking up, it's only getting worse. And I don't know what the, the pushback would be for all midwives to get together and just say, no, the medical board's going to take your license. All of you, it's going to go investigate all of you. See, yeah, but, all, it's the prisoner's dilemma, yeah. which is no one wants to be the first person to challenge this. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they don't, they, well, they don't they'll be supported by everybody else behind them. Yeah. No, like I said, nobody seems to have an issue with it. Um, so I guess it's just my the way my mind works. But and, moving and on my, to moving on to birthy birthy type things. Um, I wasn't going to share the story, but you encouraged me to do so. And then I have a follow up to it. That's quite interesting. So um, I had a mom the other day, a first time mom. I saw her in the office on Monday. Her baby wasn't engaged and was um, ROA. Why is that important? Well, that usually means that we have a little bit of time before the baby's going to come. She did have a little bit of um, mucus plug release, but I was like, I think I think we've got some time. Well, then her uh, bag ruptures, uh, her waters release um, the very next day or the next or the day after. So um, so her waters released, no contractions. Um, we hadn't gotten her GBS status back yet um, because they had rejected the first lab. And so we had to do it again. So that was a little bit of a, mm, okay, what are we going to do about this? Um, we just, we discussed it and um, they decided to kind of give it a wait and see approach and, and decide later how they wanted to approach the antibiotics if we didn't get the results back in time. Um, we went 24 hours uh, post-rupture, had a conversation, decided to go another another day and see how that evening um, transpired. She did have contractions that first night. Her doula came over, things petered out. Another sign that maybe we have a malpositioned baby and this was going to be kind of a long journey. So at 48 hours, I encourage them to consider 
maybe getting things going with castor oil. Um, they agreed. I said, you know, this is just starting labor. So we don't know how long this is going to be. And then we'll be, you know, maybe 72 hours ruptured. Um, so this, this seems to me like a good idea. And they agreed. Um, she went and got all the things she needed. She took castor oil around noon after a nap. Um, and the second dose is usually two hours later. Well, when I checked in for the second dose, she said, you know, do I have to take it? I'm having some contractions and I'm feeling quite nauseous. And I said, no, let's just see how your body goes. You don't have to do that right now. So then, uh, so that would have been around two o'clock. She was having mild contractions and then around four o'clock, three thirty-four. Her contractions are four to six minutes apart. Her doula is quite far. So she decides, the doula decides she's going to head on over. Um, and I walk into an interview <laughs> and I think I'll be out in an hour. I'll check and see how everyone's doing. I, my bag was, my car was all packed so I could head over there leisurely if I wanted to, because they were far from me as well, about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic. Um, and a couple of times during the interview, I thought about my phone in my bag and I thought, well, it'll buzz. I'll hear it if anybody needs me um, and went on with the interview. It turns out that the conversation was quite long and it was about an hour, 20 minutes when I came out and my phone had blown up because the doula arrived an hour later and the mom was feeling pushy. And so I got in my car and hauled ass over there. Um, the doula, Katie Barnes, who's one of my favorites, who I tell every time I see her that she probably should be a midwife, um, said, I said, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? How's it going? She said, I think she's going to start pushing soon. Well, again, this is a prime up. So pushing could be a really long time, right? I could totally still make it. Um, she said, if I need you, can I FaceTime you? I said, of course. Then I start thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I should should ask her if she wants me to have another midwife come that's closer. And I said, do you want me to have someone come that's in the area? And she says, yeah, I think I'm seeing splitting, which she means like the labia is starting to open. Okay. So I call another midwife. She's there within 10 minutes and barely made it for the baby to be born. I arrived after the placenta and the baby, which was about 25 minutes after the baby was born. So I was feeling really like silly. Awful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't believe, I mean, what a rookie move to like not have my phone next to me. You know, all of the, I was kind of like kicking myself about it. They had a beautiful experience. Um, they were feeling totally joyous. Like, no, they weren't, they weren't feeling upset at all. Um, so then the same doula has a mom who's 42 weeks. This woman was 38 weeks, is a multip and decides to take castor oil. This is like two days after this birth. Decides to take castor oil to kind of get things going because in California, as you guys know, we have this silly law. So 72 hours later, Stu, this woman <laughs> delivers her baby in the hospital. She had to go into the hospital because things weren't progressing. They left, the, the midwife and the doula left her house because she was only four centimeters dilated, having contractions every two minutes. So it just was a reminder, I think, from the universe to just be like, it's all about surrender. We never know. Maybe that maybe Katie was supposed to catch that baby because she's going to be a midwife one day. And it was another reminder, like we're not in control. And I was attached to my phone, like 
nobody's business in the next few days because I was like, okay, I, I need to not let that happen again. But it just shows you that we just never know. And it was totally unexpected for a first time mom. You just never know. I love that the fact that you said it's like a rookie mistake, but you know what? You're not a rookie. So obviously it's uh, anybody can make that mistake. And I'll tell you that, that one of the best things that's, you know, I know that this is impossible for everybody listening who works in the birth world, but for me to not have to have my phone with me all the time is such a joy <laughs> because, mm-hmm. um, and now you and, and yeah, so you learn a lesson. You have to carry your phone with you all the time. Even you know, for first time moms. <laughs> you have to get that, uh, that Bluetooth radiation on your butt all the time. <laughs> it works. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I would like you to read Anna's letter, I think, because it sort of gets back to um, just a little bit more about what I was talking about when I was on The Daily Show. Um, By the way, I love my swag. Thank you, Daily Show. (laughs) (laughs) Bliss, what is Element? L-M-N-T. It's a amazing sponsor first of all we love them so much but it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the bs like us that's right (laughs) i taught you well (laughs) it is it's got a lot of uh good salts in it and uh no sugar i even uh took a little notes here and they have um a thousand milligrams of sodium 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium which helps maintain fluid balance regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood, and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot of <laughs> after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes and i carry it with me whenever i travel and i add it to my water like in the hotel room and stuff and i've spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms it's a great sponsor and they've they've been doing really well and i'm really proud to be um supporting them they have multiple flavors your favorite Uh, is raspberry right raspberry is mine and yours is mango chili but i i do have i do have some sad news oh so long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Okay, so this is the letter from Hannah. It's titled Real Cause of Postpartum PTSD. Hello again. I was listening to a recent podcast of yours. I think 336-ish, she says. (laughs) I heard you mention that many obstetric practitioners blame birth trauma on women's expectations of birth. And then you proceeded to say how preposterous that is. I agree. It is preposterous, but I also kind of think that they're right. Women don't really expect that labor 
or delivery go perfectly, but women do expect that their bodies will be treated with respect, that their wishes will be heard and adhered to, and that birth and their babies will be honored. They believe their doctors are only going to suggest interventions that are absolutely needed and that they will receive all pertinent information about each visit and each procedure so that they understand fully what is to happen. They also assume that these doctors are up to date on best practices and are attentive to the holistic needs of their patients. Um, I'm going to stop myself and say <laughs> it's an unrealistic expectation to think that doctors are going to do that. And that's part of the problem. But midwives her, do that. I think that's her point. I think that's her <laughs> I point. I know. But right. midwives do that. Okay. Um, women expect that their decisions are considered final and their parent personhood is maintained with dignity. Women do not expect to be treated as a birthing body and means to an end. They do not expect to be bullied, misled, coerced, ignored, or threatened. They do not expect to be condescended. They do not expect to be abused or gaslit. They do not expect to have to defend themselves from the very people hired to care for them. Unfortunately, their expectations are not always met. While these things don't happen to every woman, they happen way too often. One third of women experiencing birth trauma is not a problem with the women. It's a problem with the system in charge of women's births. I wonder how many of these traumatized women are also represented in the one third of women experiencing postpartum depression. But we chalk that up to hormones and move on, never questioning if a number that high is truly normal or unpreventable. Um, as if the female body is designed to torment each woman at every turn because nature is evil and stupid and medicine can finally save us. Women hope for more than just surviving the birth with a living baby, but that's all they're allowed to be grateful for. That's a pretty low bar for the modern innovative medical industry to have for such a common naturally occurring event as birth. Don't you think? I won't yeah, go on. We do. We do think that. <laughs> I think you can see what I'm getting at. Maybe if we keep raising the bar, practitioners can finally expect more from themselves and then fewer families are harmed in the process of birth. I hope more people listen to your podcast and others like it, not so that they can be afraid of hospital birth, but so that they cannot be afraid of any birth so they can trust themselves and hold practitioners accountable for providing good care so they can understand their options and feel empowered to choose more dignified, sacred, restful, peaceful, more joyful birth whenever and wherever possible. Thank you for being a part of this important work and for being present as your true selves with us. Thank you, Thank Anna. You. That's a beautiful letter. It is a beautiful letter and uh, it speaks for itself. Um, so since we have so much to get to today, we'll move on, but I forgot to tell everybody what our topic is today. <laughs> if we get to it, <laughs> if we get to it, that's right. We may not even get to it, but it's genetic testing today. Yeah. So carrier screening and genetic testing. We'll talk about that. Which uh, Dr. Stu said is boring, by the way, I've been trying to get him to do this topic for a few weeks and he's like, it's so boring. So, um, we're going to do our best to not have it be too boring, but we know that you guys like to search the topics and, um, this is one that people want to know about. So they do. Thank you for humoring okay, me. So I, I have a little bit of sort of gallows humor, not humor, but just, inf the, the, I got my, um, 
my explanation of benefits from Medicare for my eye surgery last September. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, this is just one of four eye surgeries I had last year. But I just I just wanted to to go through um the the um doctor for this uh for the surgery to remove my cataract and insert a new lens. The charge was seven thousand six hundred and ninety-nine dollars and uh Medicare paid five hundred and thirty-six dollars. So they paid seven percent of what his charge was. Now maybe his charge was excessive, but seven percent is is ridiculously low. When uh for the uh, the same doctor for an office visit, he got paid 76% of what he billed. And for the anesthesiologist who did the you did the anesthesia for my surgery, got paid 20% of what he billed. He billed eleven hundred dollars for my surgery and he got paid $225. And you and you don't pay anymore. Oh, they just a, that's just what they get, right? Yeah, that's just what they get. That's what Medicare pays. I have a very small co-payment. Like for for the one that was $7,000, I had to pay $107. Mm-hmm. I mean, Medicare limits what they can charge. Mm-hmm. The point I'm making here, okay. Well, the, one last one. The, um, the surgery center charged $19,000 for the surgery. They got reimbursed 12% of what they charged. That's why they charge so much. <laughs> I, I don't know if they charged, you know, $30,000 would they get... Would they still only get the same amount? I don't know. Mm-hmm. All I know is that the business of medicine is completely fucked up because yeah. this is why doctors have to do volume. Yes. Because if the doctor is only going to get paid, you know, a hundred dollars for an office visit and he's got a $500 an hour overhead, probably modest, then he has to definitely see at least five patients an hour before he can, you know, go home and buy an apple at the, at the grocery store. So, yeah. um, you have to do volume. And, you know, the government is only expanding its coverage. People want more uh, government-run health care. And I just, this is just a warning. I don't want to dwell on it anymore. I just thought that that was pretty amazing when I saw what they got paid for what they charged. I mean, these are skilled, skilled doctors who are operating on my eyeball. And, you know, they're getting paid 12 to 20 Yeah. Um. Did you have any other letters you wanted to read, Bliss? Um, I have one. I have a couple more things I want to talk about before we get to uh, our topic. Well, there's a couple good letters, but I can read them another time. Okay, let's get to. Um, this is just a quick thing from Peter McCullough. He's the the cardiologist who has been vilified for speaking truth and presenting evidence against the um, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccination program. And this one's titled, The Maternal MRNA SARS-CoV-2 Vaccination Fails to Protect Babies. So I just wanted to summarize this. This is from just recently. Um, December 5th was the date. That's yesterday from when we're recording. The biopharmaceutical complex pushed COVID-19 vaccines on pregnant women with false messages that, that vaccination would, quote, protect, unquote, their babies. ACOG was the leader of this sort of thing. The CDC makes this deceptive claim on their website. They say, if you are pregnant or recently pregnant, you are more likely to get very sick from COVID-19 compared to people who are not pregnant. Additionally, if you have COVID-19 during pregnancy, you are at increased risk of complications that can affect your pregnancy and developing baby. 
What's wrong with that sentence, Bliss, is they say more likely and increased risk, which is which is our code words in our podcast for what does it really mean? Uh, what is the actual risk? They never tell you that. And and then they say getting the COVID, getting a, the updated COVID-19 vaccine can help protect both you and your baby from serious illness. People who are pregnant should stay up to date with their COVID-19 vaccines and get an updated COVID-19 vaccine in the fall of 2023. That's put out by the CDC. And uh, then it's perfectly equated with ACOG. ACOG mirrors exactly what the CDC says in every, they're in lockstep. But none of that's, but none of that is really true. I mean, in some cases it may be true, but there there are papers out there that say pregnant women are not going to get sicker and, and then if they catch COVID, how many actually get really sick? We talked about this on a previous podcast. How many of your patients said you in your entire career who've had the flu or COVID ended up getting hospitalized? Mm-hmm. Zero. We, yeah, we both said zero. Mm-hmm. So Dr. McCullough says for a vaccine to be considered in my <laughs> the um, theoretical vaccine efficacy would have to meet a lower bound of the confidence interval of greater than 50%. Since we, because we do not have randomized trials on this, we must consider the point estimate of vaccine efficacy in non-randomized studies to be a statistical blur. Then he points out a study from Go and colleagues from Singapore reported on infants testing positive for COVID-19 within six months of delivery. By the way, there was no mention of any of the babies with uh, COVID-19 illness. They just tested positive in their samples, so they weren't sick. Nevertheless, the theoretical vaccine efficacy for passive protection to the newborn was abysmal and shown in this table that follows, which showed that women who were vaccinated with COVID-19 before pregnancy uh, had a 15.4% vaccine effectiveness. That's lower than the flu that we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. And then vaccinated during pregnancy had a 41.5% vaccine effectiveness. Now, that's less than his 50% threshold, and it also does not talk anything about the possible problems with getting the vaccine and the spike protein and crossing placenta and all that other stuff. So he says, lesson learned, do not be deceived by a vaccine syndicate trying to tap into maternal instincts to, quote, protect, unquote, your baby. In contradistinction, an astute mother would recognize the potential dangers of her injection with mRNA coding for lethal spike protein that was engineered in the Wuhan Institute of Virology years ago. So, since I've been accused of being anti-vax, and we talked about that, I talked about that earlier, um, among many other things, uh, I considered being vaccine skeptical mm-hmm. and vaccine-wise to be a compliment. I really do think it's And any doctor who will be telling you that safe and effective uh, um, and that, they're, that it's safe and effective and they're encouraging vaccination is actually lying to you. They're lying to you. Because... It's never been tested for safety. And right. the testing that's coming out now, the studies that are coming out are, are telling you that it's not safe. So if you're a practitioner, whether it be your general practitioner, your OB, your dermatologist, tells you to get vaccinated because it's safe and effective, ask them for evidence, first of all, and then maybe consider looking for another practitioner. On yeah. that serious, you know, I'm already out there on the record. What can I tell you? <laughs> Okay. You know, I was, I was, um, I was just thinking about the anti-vaxxer term. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking, um, OB should be like called anti-sushi. 
<laughs> All we're doing is giving you information on something that we don't think you should maybe, maybe you don't want to put it in your body when you're pregnant, right? Like, um, we're not, I'm not anti, I, I just, you know, my clients. Who oh, it's a slur, Bliss. It's a slur. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, it's a way to, dimi to diminish what you're saying. Sorry. Yeah. Um, my clients who want to vaccinate, um, I totally support them and, and who have vaccinated, uh, you know, there's no anti anything in my language or how I support them. It's really just about informing people about the downside so that they can make an informed decision. You know, and it sort of gets back to Hannah's letter about mothers expecting their doctor to be honest with them and then taking what the doctor says at face value. Yeah. And I don't know where you've been um, the last several years, but I don't know how you can take any anything that anyone says to you at face value. You know, whether it's whether it's a uh, government bean counter or whether it's uh, an obstetrician, yeah. you have to do your homework. You have to look into it and you can't just Google it because Google filters the searches. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, right. I was talking to one of my clients the other day who's having a home birth and, you know, like talking about their friends and things that their friends say and stuff like that. And one of her friends actually said to her, I don't understand why you would want to take a birth class. Like, what are you what are you learning? Like, why don't you just do what the doctors tell you? I don't understand what you need to learn. And I was like, it's really interesting. Such a, you know, like this is just different ways that people look at things and I think the people that are choosing this route or that listen to this podcast are wanting to take a deeper dive and are wanting to look a little bit deeper. And that's what we're here for. So that's what, that's we're what take we're a here deep for. Dive. Okay. So um, let's see. Let's let, I'm going to save, I have a letter, uh, not a letter, but a, a paper put out by a person that I know who did her, her uh, doctorate thesis on, um, it's called I Had No Choice, a mixed, mixed method study on access to care for vaginal breech birth. But since we're running short on time today, I think I'm going to uh, ask you, Bliss, to we're going to get to our topic right after this word from our sponsor. And then I'm going to ask you to read Aaron's letter uh, yep. about genetics. And then we'll we'll take a dive into uh, genetic screening. Okay. Okay. So, Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall. And we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your 
you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. And we're back. (laughs) I love that. You know why we giggle, you guys? Because we don't really go anywhere. That's why yeah. we always laugh. <laughs> We're always just right here. Um, I feel like a newscaster. I think they know that. I think they know that. <laughs> I feel like a newscaster today with my papers. You know how they do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is what I do every I have to do this because my brain doesn't remember stuff like that anymore. I get it. You know, it is. I made an analogy uh, a couple podcasts ago about my brain being like a, a mess, a messy garage. <laughs> you know it you know it's in there but you just can't find it <laughs> exactly okay so this is a letter from um Aaron rain and um she says hi dr Stu and bliss well wait the subject is nipt results okay Advocating there you go. for yourself and trusting your gut great right okay. um I'm not sure if this will ever get to you and I do apologize because it is long but I feel I need to share so that in the off chance you do share on the podcast, which we are, maybe I can be one more anecdotal story that women who are in my situation can reference. First off, I just learned of your podcast last week when my midwife shared a clip of your episode with Kimberly Johnson. I promptly listened to the episode, then subscribed, bought her book, The Fourth Trimester. Since then, I've been catching up on episodes and I'm addicted. I am the mother of two healthy boys and I am currently 23 weeks pregnant with our third baby. I've had two hospital births with midwives, the first with an epidural, the second without one. And my second postpartum experience in the hospital and at home was extremely difficult. Because of that, with this third baby, we've decided to go the home birth route and truly go after a physiologic birth. We had plans to move five months after becoming pregnant. So I quickly found a very reputable home birth CNM in the area we moved to and interviewed her and put my deposit down. I had a great relationship with the hospital CNM that delivered my second son. So for traveling purposes, I decided to do my first three to four appointments um, and blood work at the practice she worked at. Everything was standard, but I did opt for the NIPT first trimester test, this time solely to find out the sex early, which I think is a very common reason why people choose this test. So um, I am 33 years old for reference, so not 
advanced maternal age as it's defined by the medical system. I have always waited until the anatomy scan to find out the sex and had the quad screening done with prior to pregnancies because that's what our military insurance covered at the time. We had no family history, but we wanted to have some level of risk tested for peace of mind. I am still disappointed in myself for not asking more questions about the NIPT and what the results could actually mean because I have been such an advocate for myself in my prior two pregnancies, but I never in a million years thought I would have a positive or high risk result. And I also expected my midwife to fully counsel me on the testing. She's supposed to be the expert, right? Fast forward to my results. I received at almost 13 weeks pregnant that were sent directly to my email from LabCorp and not a call from my provider. I was negative for trisomy 13, 18, and 21, but there was an overly there was an over-representation of genetic material on chromosome 18 in the size of 13.2 MB observed. I obviously had no that's, idea that's what me, that That's meant. megabytes, but that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. I obviously had no idea what that meant, and I immediately started to freak out. Can I just say something? Yeah. I don't I don't know I don't know what it means either. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to be the expert, right? Uh, not on that. No, I'm yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. Um to sum up the next 5 weeks, I had to fight to be in contact with the local MFM's office. They were not going to see me for even a consult until I was 20 weeks pregnant. Can I, I just I have to I have to chime in here too, Bliss. Um the fact that they wouldn't that she got an abnormal result at 13 weeks. She called the MFM's office. They won't see her till 20 weeks. First of all, it's insane. I don't know why. My suspicion basically maybe is that she has military insurance. I was going to say. Mm-hmm. That would be my, my guess. Mm-hmm. That because they, they, you know, you don't have choices there. And they're not very sensitive to your needs. They're going to make you set, wait seven weeks. Well, she goes on. So let her go on. But, but yeah, I don't um, very, um, government insurance for that medical and all of those things are very similar in terms of the quality of care that you get. But people um, want more. But people want more of that. Yeah. To sum up, the next five weeks, I had to fight to be. Oh, I said that. Okay. I asked my home birth midwife if she could refer me to an MFM, but due to the home birth guidelines in the state of Georgia, very few providers will even acknowledge home birth midwives and she is a CNM. Okay. Um, what, what good does that do anyone of, but a disservice to the mother? Given a severe intellectual and or diagnosis, my husband and I would make the very personal and painful decision to terminate the pregnancy. So we wanted as much concrete information as possible and definitive testing as soon as we could, which is understandable. Um, I was not going to wait five weeks to find out if something was genetically abnormal with the baby. In Georgia, termination after six weeks is not allowed. I felt that because I wasn't allowed to do anything about the pregnancy, there was no rush to see me or even, oh, I felt that because I wasn't allowed to do anything about the pregnancy, there was no rush to see me or even address my concerns. Luckily, my brother-in-law is an OBGYN resident at the University of Colorado Healthcare System. And he put me in touch with an MFM who's also a genetics fellow. Let me first say, 
I live my life in the most natural, medicine-free, least medicalized way possible, except when absolutely necessary. However, this was a time when I wanted an MFM and I wanted a good one. And there are good ones. There are good ones yeah. out there. Yeah. And right. it's understandable because of the choice that her family felt like they needed to make. Um, the day after my brother-in-law put us in contact, we had a Zoom consult. The MFM told us that the likelihood of this being a false positive was extremely low and that the size of the material observed is almost the entire length of the short arm of a chromosome, essentially. So wait, so wait. So in other words, when they, the way she worded that is that the likelihood of it being a false positive was low, meaning that it's likely positive. <laughs> Just want to mm-hmm. make sure they understood because there was a lot of double, double negatives or whatever there. Okay. Great. Thank you. Essentially, these test results indicated this baby could have trisomy 18 or so three short arms and two long arms, chromosome 18, right? Yeah, it's it's just an extra short arm. Yeah. Right. This is not Edwards syndrome, but a majority of cases documented had severe intellectual and physical abnormalities. Given our decision to terminate if this was confirmed and confirmed with a severe diagnosis, we scheduled for an early anatomy scan and amniocentesis that would be performed at 16 weeks, three days in Denver. We flew to Denver and received nothing but amazing care and thorough information. My husband and I were prepared for the worst, but I had this gut feeling deep down that everything was fine. The anatomy scan was long and the tech and the MFM confirmed that even at only 16 weeks, three days, they saw everything they needed and that physically the baby girl looked 100% beautiful and normal. He then performed the amniocentesis, which was much easier than anticipated. He spoke positively about the anatomy scan, but still his opinion was that the amnio would come back showing an abnormality. The initial FISH. Fish, that's a, it's a, it's a rapid reading of the chromosomes. Uh, you get that back in about three days, whereas the amniote results will talk, probably take seven to 14 days to get back. So they often give you a fish reading, right? Okay. Came back three days later and all looked good. One week later, my husband and my karyotype results came back and we were both 100% genetically normal. So the parents had themselves tested as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. On this phone call, the MFM asked if I wanted to be proactive and schedule a termination appointment because they booked two weeks out and most families want it done very quickly after receiving results. I know he was coming from the right place, but this gutted me. Even though we had discussed what our decision would be if we had a bad diagnosis at this point, we didn't even have any bad news yet and nothing was confirmed. I spiraled for the next two days because I couldn't help but feel so positive that this in fact was all a mistake and the baby was healthy. I told him I would not be scheduling a termination until we received a diagnosis and had further counseling. Two days later, I received a call from the MFM who was ecstatic on the phone. He told me that my baby I was carrying was 100% genetically normal. There was nothing wrong. In my mind, all I kept saying to myself was, I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. The joy in his voice was something I don't think he has when communicating results often given his profession. We discussed a little longer and his belief is that it is a placental 
mosaicism. They say that right? Yeah. But I call bullshit. <laughs> I have never felt something in my gut so strongly as I did that this was all a big fat false positive. From the point I received the initial NIPT results to getting some good, the good news call from the MFM was five weeks. I stressed and worried for five weeks. This is my last pregnancy, but if I ever got pregnant again, or if anyone asked my advice, I would never do an NIP test again. It cost me so much energy, stress, energy, stress, stress on my marriage, how I treated my kids, money to fly to a different state, which don't get me wrong. I'm glad we did for the peace of mind. These tests are great at detecting the big trisomies and other abnormalities, but false positive rates for the micro deletions and other abnormalities is extremely high. I apologize for this length for the length of this, but uh, I don't feel like one will ever read about anecdotal stories on the internet. So if this good outcome reaches just one person, I would be thrilled. Thank you for all you do. I have teared up multiple times already hearing the passion in both of your stories you shared during the episodes. I'm getting even more in the zone for my home birth and I'm so excited. Thanks again, Aaron. Yeah. Well, we have the greatest listeners. Um, yes, we do. We do just a couple things. Um, I know that she would never do an NIPT test again, but uh, I, that's an emotional response and certainly justified in her case. But it's not a logical response. There are reasons to, to do this test, and we'll be talking about them next. Um, the fact that she had to spend money to fly to a different state is, if if I could just be mild and say it, irritates me greatly. <laughs> if you catch my drift, you know it's just it's crap. It's bullshit. That, yeah. that she couldn't that she couldn't get anyone locally to to take care of her. Yeah. Because obviously, if it was abnormal and she wanted to terminate, the risks to her go up. Mm -hmm. And if she would have wanted another baby afterwards, because they only wanted three, but they, this one would have, would have not been there, they they would have put her at more risk the, the, the farther along in gestation you are to have the termination done. And then um, she says the, the rate of uh, micro deletions and other anomalies, the false positive rates is extremely high. That's another term that even though we often talk about more risky or uh, uh, increased likelihood, um, I don't know what the rate of false positives is. Um, I tried to do a little research in it. I think it's one to two percent or less. Um, but if they do this on hundreds of thousands of women, one to two percent is a thousand women. But again, how do they know that? Because there are many times Good that question. they are they are counseled to terminate. They are counseled well, to yeah, terminate, and they, so and, they do, and, and then who would know? And all all these organizations tell you don't don't ever terminate based on NIPT testing. Mm -hmm. Don't ever do that mm -hmm. because of the false positives. Right. You've got to correlate that with other things, and we, so let's get into that. Okay. Let's get into it. I thought that was a a, a really appropriate letter. Um, is from last June, so she's already had her baby. I hope, Erin, uh, it's went great. Maybe you can let us know. Um. So I'm going to talk a little bit today about carrier screening, which the parents had. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about NIPT testing, the risk factors associated with NIPT testing, more extensive screening um, that you can do beyond that, and then also the quad screen, amnio, and CVS. So because we need to talk about that. So um, I think we can do this in about 20, 25 minutes, I think. Don't you think? Okay, great. All right. So I'll read really fast. 
Right. No, it's whatever it is. If we have a longer podcast, it's okay. Carrier screening for genetic conditions. Carrier screening is a term used to describe genetic testing that is performed on an individual who does not have any overt phenotype or genetic disorder. Generally, it's done prior to pregnancy, uh, prior to conception. Um, something that parents will do or people will do if they want to find out in their family history if they carry Tay-Sachs disease or if they carry uh, some other thing what we'll talk about in a second. And this is usually performed, as I said before, pregnancy. So information about genetic carrier screening should be provided to every pregnant woman. But I'm also saying it should be provided also to people to know about this stuff so that they can make an informed decision about looking at their specific family history and deciding, is that something that I want to do? You know, and I know, you'd bliss, that we're not for generalized screening, because, I mean, just everybody, because it does lead to the cases like Aaron's. And so, you know, you, but if people want it, they need to know that it's available, but they also need to know what the downsides of it are. Um, and if an individual, individual is found to be positive for a carrier state, of one of these diseases, they should be offered genetic uh, counseling. And that, that perfectly makes sense. And and I, as, a, uh, as an OB, you as a midwife, we're not experts in genetic counseling. Yeah. So that's not something that, that anyone should expect us to do, but they should expect us to refer somebody, refer you to somebody, excuse me. Absolutely. Um, and you have to look at the family history. It's really important. To look at a family history. You have to, you know, have to know. Is there anybody in their family that's had a problem? Uh, what's their heritage? Where, what part of the world are they? Are they do they come from? Um, prenatal carrier screening does not replace newborn screening. So, because babies can be born with something, and it can be a new mutation. All right. Um, so the recommended, the things that they screen for are things like spinal muscle, spinal muscular atrophy, cystic fibrosis we know very well, hemoglobinopathies, fragile X syndrome. And then there are, there are conditions that are affiliated with um, uh, where you're from and your, and your religious heritage, your like European and uh, Jewish descent, um, specifically Ashkenazi Jews. I don't know why we carry more stuff in our genes than other people do. It's probably something that you could explain by looking back through history. Um, it says, and again, I'm not going to get into these individual diseases. That's way beyond the scope of our podcast. Um, but the, it says when only one partner of an, uh, is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, the individual should be offered screening first. If it is determined that this individual is a carrier, then the other partner should get screening. There's no reason to screen both because these are usually autosomal recessive traits. It requires both parents to be carriers and then there's a one in four chance when both parents are carriers of having, of catching that, of having that, your child have that disease. So Tay-Sachs disease is one that people have probably all heard of. It's more common in Ashkenazi Jews, surprisingly French Canadians and, and people of Cajun descent. So try to put that together. <laughs> <laughs> it makes, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Okay. Spinal muscular atrophy is an autosomal recessive disease characterized by degener gen degeneration of the spinal cord motor neurons and leads to atrophy of skeletal muscle and overall weakness. The incidence of spinal, mus uh, spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA, is approximately 1 in 6,000 to 1 in 10,000. And the disease is reported to be the leading genetic cause of infant death. Hmm. So 
I want to make sure that's clear. It's not the leading cause of infant death. It's the leading cause of genetic infant death. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the risk of dying from this, if it's is one in 6,000 to one in 10,000, is higher than the risk of you dying from RSV or pertussis. Mm. Everybody panics about all that stuff. Approximately 2% of cases of spinal muscular atrophy are the result of a new gene mutation, and there's no effective treatment for the disease. So again, even if the, you're, even if both parents are not carriers, and I would have to say about, about carrier screening again, is that most of our clients never do it, right? I don't, I can't remember how often I ever ordered this, the test, it's called the Horizon, or it's from Natera, a company that does this sort of genetic screening. Uh, some people want it and we we draw it and order it and it's drawn like the same kit as like NIPT testing same kind of looks the packaging looks the same and and would you i know that you were saying like look at um you know their ethnicity and like to be able to determine that um but when would we draw that if we were going to do it at the same time is it also you can do it. Well, no, it's part. It's part of the carrier screening, right? That's what I'm saying. When would you? When would you recommend? I guess people do it before they get pregnant. Sometime, correct. So it can be done at any point in pregnancy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You can do it at any point in pregnancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can do it at any point. If you know, like, if you get a questionable result, like like Aaron did, they went and they went and wanted to check the chromosomes of the parents to see if either one of them had some sort of balanced translocation on chromosome 13. Right. That they were doing, and they didn't. Yeah. Sort of either had to be a new mutation or a false positive. Right. Yeah. In that case. So they recommend that screening for spinal muscular atrophy should be offered to all women who are considering pregnancy. Now, this is really interesting because the incidence is one in 6,000 to one in 10,000. The carrier rate's a little, a lot higher than that, but, but the incidence is, is very small, yet they're recommending the screening to all, all pregnant women. I always wonder about these th- sorts of things because I, my skeptical side comes into play and says, mm-hmm. "Any more problems? Are you generating more revenue? What are you doing by doing all all of you know all of this? Obviously, you do, a baby born with this is going to be very very difficult life for that baby. It's not going to it's not going to live that long. And there are different types of spinal muscular atrophy too. So, or yeah, there are different types, but." I'm not that again, that's more than I can do with the scope of practice, but it just gets me thinking bliss about, about should we be, how much, how many testing is, should we offer every pregnant woman? And when we've offered every pregnant woman, every test that's available, you'd exsanguinate them. <laughs> and they do sometimes when they come in from another, uh, from another provider, a lot of times they're like, they took like 10 vials of blood, you know? And I'm like, gosh, I think it's when they're doing the screening that's, test. That's a little hyperbole there, but I'm just saying that yes, you, I know. Can go nuts, you can go nuts mm-hmm. trying to figure out which tests you should offer, which tests you shouldn't offer, which is why a lot of doctors just throw in the towel and just tell everyone to have all the testing because to not mm-hmm. test somebody and miss something puts you at le- uh, legal risk. Mm-hmm. And, and no doctor wants that. And so there's no downside into testing other than potentially creating false positives, which is not the doctor's problem. I mean, ultimately it's sort of, but not really. Okay. Cystic fibrosis is more common among non-Hispanic white population. So Caucasians. 
um, let's see, increasing difficulty, in this, but but because of sort of the mongreling of the races <laughs> that we have in the world right now, it, the, assigning a single ethnicity to individuals in 2005, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists recommend offering cystic fibrosis screening to all patients because you have no idea what their genes are anymore. Mm-hmm. I think actually um, makes us stronger. Uh, the disease incidence is one in 2,500 in the Caucasian population. I'm not sure why they call it non-Hispanic white. Isn't that the same thing as Caucasian or are Hispanics Caucasian? I don't think so. They have a different box on the, you know, when you plot a questionnaire. Any it thought? depends on the questionnaire. Sometimes it's listed as non-Hispanic white. Oh, it, it's crazy. I mean, for, you know, I don't like categorizing people, but obviously for genetic screening, it actually has relevance. Yes, it does. Right. Um, more than 1,700 mutations have been identified for cystic fibrosis. And they're screening, the, the, the American College of Medical Genetics recommends using a panel that contains at a minimum the 23 most common mutations. So even if you have screening, you might not, you might not pick it up. I mean, you're not right. going to be screening for 1,700. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, mean, it, it's, I don't know. That's why I think people are having an adverse react, aversion, I guess aversion would be a better word, to, to all this medical stuff. It just gets overwhelming. It does. It does. That's yeah. why I just didn't do any of this stuff because for me, it was just like, I just am going to take the baby that I get and I'm going to take well, what God has given me. I, th I think I would feel a little bit different now later in life. I mean, I can't have babies anymore, but when I was still able to have babies and I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, I would probably do it some kind of genetic screening because there's a higher chance. And I've I'm older and I already had children. So I think I would like probably want to know a little bit more. But when I was young and I was low risk, it just was like, why do I want to worry about all this stuff? Like, I'll just handle what I'm given, you know, but like, well, that's it's because why we, we, tr we trust. I mean, again, there's, there's a trust that we have about all this. What's interesting. You said that you can't have babies anymore. I just read something yesterday that said that some 70 year old woman someplace had a had a baby. So. And it was an idea. Right. What? You can't have babies, is what you're saying. Yeah. You still have a baby. I mean, you still have a uterus, but that's too much personal. We'll leave that alone. Okay. Uh, hemoglobinopathies. That's a, a long word for things like sickle cell disease, which obviously is more common in people of African origin. Uh, approximately one in 10 African Americans has sickle cell trait. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. 10%. So, uh, which means that one in every 300 to 500 African American, American newborns has some form of sickle cell disease. Mm. Right. I'm, I'm assuming that that's if uh, African American marries an African American, um, then they, then you have a higher rate of sickle cell disease in the children of some form. Mm -hmm. There's the thalassemias. There's alpha thal. Alpha thalassemia is a common in individuals of Southeast Asian, African, and West Indian descent, and in individuals with Mediterranean ancestry. Uh, I'm not going to get into what that disease is. And there's beta-thal. Beta-thal is individuals of Mediterranean, Asian, Middle Eastern, Hispanic, and West Indian descent are more likely to have that. 
Okay, so screening is a combination of laboratory tests. To ensure accurate hemoglobin identification, which is essential for genetic counseling, besides doing the genetic screening, you need to do a complete blood count so that you can get the red blood cell indices because thalassemias will have what's called microcytic cells. You may not be anemic, but the cells will be really small, very similar to what iron, iron deficiency will do if it's really severe. Um, but iron deficiency will also lead to anemia, whereas thalassemia might be slightly anemic, but, they, but the cells are really small uh, in size. So you need that, and you need maybe a hemoglobin electrophoresis as well to um, give an accurate diagnosis for things like sickle cell disease and stuff like that. Okay, so that's that. Um, and then there's fragile X syndrome. Uh, this again, these are all for carrier screening. These are things that we're screening uh, parents for. Uh, fragile X syndrome is the most common inherited form of intellectual disability. The syndrome occurs in approximately one in 3,600 males and one in 4,000 to 6,000 females and doesn't really follow an ethnic inheritance like the other ones do. Fragile X syndrome is commonly known as a common known cause of autism or autism, autism spectrum disorder with behaviors with intellectual disability. All right. So um, really important when you do pre-pregnancy or prenatal carrier screening is to take a good history. Fragile X permutation carrier screening is recommended for women with a family history of fragile X related disorders or intellectual disability suggestive of fragile X syndrome or are considering pregnancy or are currently pregnant. Um, also, women are uh, uh, women with a, adult women with fragile X often have a, a ovarian insufficiency, so maybe they don't get pregnant as easily. I don't really know, but that's just something else. So if you're having ovarian problems, something to get potentially checked out as well. It all it all starts to get like leftovers in the fridge. You know, there's there's just way too many things to think about here. If a patient with no family history requests fragile X screening, it's reasonable to offer screening after informed consent. So you don't have to have a history to get these, any of these screenings, if a person asks for them, they should be, uh, they should get them and they shouldn't have to fly to Denver to do it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has previously recommended offering carrier screening for four conditions in the Ashkenazi population. Canavan disease, cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs disease, and familial dysautonomia. I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to get into those. Just don't have the time. Some experts, I love that when they say some experts, it's always, it's just a red flag for me. I don't know what that means. Have Because some experts means some experts are not advocating for it. So it's, if it was, if it was universal, they'd say all experts, but they don't. Some experts have advocated for a more comprehensive screening panel for those of Ashkenazi descent including Bloom syndrome, Fanconi anemia, Gaucher's disease, glycogen storage disease type one, mucolipidosis type four. Boy, do we ever think we'd say mucolipidosis type four on the podcast? <laughs> no. I have to add a little humor to make sure that you're still like, because <laughs> it's overwhelming. Neiman-Pick disease and Usher syndrome. The prevalence of these disorders in non-Jewish populations, except for Tay-Sachs disease and cystic fibrosis is unknown. And the sensitivity of these carrier tests in the non-Jewish population has not been established. So the screening is for Ashkenazi Jews and, and related and, and um, French Canadians and what was the other one? Cajuns. But mm -hmm. they have just random people to see if that testing is actually accurate. 
I'm not sure why it wouldn't be, but they're making that statement. So there must be something in the way they do the testing. Okay. So how would people get tested for that? Well, you just ask your doctor or midwife or your, whatever your practitioner is for a test. And then and the one that people use the most, I think, is called the Horizon test. It's made by Natera. Um, and it screens for all the things we just talked about. I don't know how many cystic fibrosis genes they're looking for, but it's it's a whole list of things. And the link to that site and everything that I'm talking about today, that stuff I just read, will be in the show notes. So people, if they want to do more deep dive, just go to the show notes, click on the links, and it'll take you to, to those things. All right. So that's carrier screening. So that's different than screening your baby. Right. right? That's for the parents, which can be done before pregnancy or at any point in pregnancy. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor for Fit. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, Pretty the birth fit community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code instincts1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program or go to birthfit.com, use the code instincts2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Okay, so it's been uh, genetic screening has been revolutionized since uh, since my uh, book came out in 2010, Fearless Pregnancy. I always tell people that even though I wrote this when I was still a hospital-based physician, 
the book is still fairly relevant. It's really interesting for me to see how I was thinking back then. But genetics chapter is completely obsolete uh, because they didn't have any of this stuff that I'm going to be talking about now. In those days, they were doing uh, the the triple marker or the quad screen or the or the AFP, and that was what was doing being done back in 2004 to 2010. So NIP tests. NIPT. When did that come out? When did it come out, Stu? I've been saying to people about 10 years. Do you have a year? Yeah, it must have been after 2010, because that's when my book came out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, what I was thinking. About yeah, it had to be years. after 2010. So maybe, yeah, like 10, 12 years. Mm -hmm. uh, NIPT stands for non-invasive prenatal testing. Why is it called non-invasive? Because you don't have to do invasive procedures. <laughs> It's a simple blood draw where the baby's genetic material is pulled from the maternal blood. So it's invasive to the mother. I mean, it's, it's a not, blood draw, but it's not as invasive as an amniocentesis, which is or a C, which or, is, a C, yeah. or a CVS. Correct. That's, yeah. that's the whole point. All mm -hmm. right. It's used to conject, detect congenital abnormalities in the fetus's DNA. And what they do is they, and I don't know how they figured this out. And this is one of the miracles of medicine is they, They've able to find fragments of fetal DNA floating around in mother's blood. We don't, we've talked about this before that these things implant in you, and you you're a chimera of all the children that you've ever had, uh, yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, so, just briefly, what does the NIP, NIPT test generally screen for? The general test screens for four things: Down syndrome, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, which is also, I think. Is that the one that's called Edwards? I, I, it doesn't matter. We're not going to get into the names of I them. Mean, we discussed that already. Okay. Um, okay. And then disorders affecting sex chromosomes. X. So that's what it screens for. And then sometimes they add these little micro deletion things in it, and you can get a little extra testing. But the sensitivity and specificity of those is not necessarily as good as it is for these four things, which, again, is in the 98 to 99 percentile. So... Just to reiterate for people that are listening, a sensitive test is a test that's positive when something is wrong. And a specific test is a test that's negative when nothing is wrong. So what you really want in this sort of case is you want a highly uh, specific test because you don't want false positives because you right. saw what you saw from Aaron's letter, what that can lead to, even though it ultimately turned out okay. So... Uh, Non-invasive prenatal testing helps determine the fetus's chances of being born with certain chromosomal disorders. So they healthcare practitioners may recommend it for you if, one, you have a child with a chromosomal abnormality, a previous child. Two, you had an ultrasound that shows the fetus may have an abnormality or an anomaly. And three, you've had an earlier screening test that suggests a potential problem. Okay, like, I'm not sure what they're talking about because this is done early enough, but maybe a, an early ultrasound or something. Or, or yeah, I don't know because even you wouldn't have a AFP or a quad screen until this late. Are they talking about the carrier screen? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Okay. American College recommends uh, NIPT testing for pregnant people considered high risk. However, it is now recommended that practitioners offer NIPT to all pregnant women, regardless of risk. So initially. ACOG put out a statement saying it should just be for people who are at risk. And, but they've revised that. And then they, they put it out. They said that all people, all people at risk, all women at risk should be offered this test. All right. I'm going to talk about that in just a second, what the FDA uh, said about that recommendation. 
What do the results of the NAPT test mean? It's a screening test. Mm -hmm. Just obviously we beat that to death. The result will show if there's an increased or a decreased risk. That's all it shows. If non-invasive prenatal testing indicates that the fetus is at risk for a chromosomal disorder, your practitioner, it says may, but I would say should, recommend diagnostic testing. These test diagnostic conditions and give a yes or no answer. And those two tests are amniocentesis and CVS. And depending how far along your pregnancy you are, you are in. Amniocentesis is a procedure where sterilely a long, thin, narrow needle is inject is in, inserted into your through your belly into the uterus to draw off some of the amniotic fluid. Uh, CVS is where generally it's done vaginally, where a small little catheter is passed through the cervix to grab a little teeny bite of the uh, placental tissue. Um, those sound risky, so I just want to talk to people about that. If you need those things, they their risk is obviously relative to how you think. But the, but the risk of an amniocentesis, which is done from about 14 weeks on, and any time during pregnancy, but about they really generally don't do it before about 14 weeks, the risk is about 1 in 400 to 1 in 700 of miscarrying from the procedure. That's above the background risk of miscarrying anyway, because a certain number of people, 14 to 18 weeks, will miscarry without having an amniocentesis. So you have to take those out. Okay? Um mm -hmm. I, somebody commented that I say okay like their dad when I'm done with a lot. So <laughs> these numbers I'm giving you are from the NIH, the National Institute of Health. The chorionic villus sampling uh, is done between 10 and 13 weeks. So if you if you do your NIPT test at 10 weeks, you get the result back that's abnormal. Most people will go for CVS uh, because they get the result back earlier. Not because it's necessarily safer, but they get the result back earlier. And the but it's exactly they're they're testing for the exact same thing, so right? They're testing to see if what the NIPT tests said is true is actually true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So what I like to tell people is when we do the NIPT and we're and we're picking up the baby's genetic material from the mom's bloodstream, what this test is actually doing is actually pulling the baby's genetic material. So that specific, so it's just, it's much more specific to the baby than the screening of the NIPT. Yes, this is baby's chromosomes. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Okay, and then the procedure-related loss risk with CVS is quoted around one in 500. So very small. Okay. Okay, um, okay so the FDA warned in, two th in, 20, in April of 2022, the FDA responded to ACOG's recommendation that everyone should have uh, an IPT test. And they said this, which is interesting. While genetic non-invasive prenatal testing screening tests are widely used today, these tests have not been reviewed by the FDA and may be making claims about their performance and use that are not based on sound science, said Jeff Shuren, MDJD, director of the FDA Center for Devices and Radiological Health. Quote, without proper understanding of how these tests should be used, People may make inappropriate healthcare decisions regarding their pregnancy. We strongly urge patients to discuss the benefits and risks of these tests with a genetic counselor or other healthcare practitioner prior to making decisions based on the results of these lab tests. So in other words, you're not supposed to act on the result of an NIPT test. And right. by putting it out there that everyone can get screened, I, I, maybe they didn't say specifically that 
I'm not sure why the FDA thought that they needed to put out this warning, but it's to advise people that these are screening tests. They've never, they really haven't been investigated as to their potential. I mean, they have been, but you know, they can be misused is what they're saying because mm -hmm. you get abnormal NIPT and obviously you're going to freak out, but to act on that, like get a termination because of that is, can be a mistake. Okay. And should not be advised by your care provider. No, no. What they should advise is to go get more genetic testing, more counseling. Right. Um, this, I want to give a credit to, uh, Dr. Lanneman on Instagram, she's DRK underscore pregnancy specialist. Uh, she put out a post just the other day that said something about that there's much more in-depth prenatal screening that can be done. And I, again, this gets into that quagmire of how much screening is too much screening and how do you decide and your head could explode. Um, this is an uh, uh, article that just came out uh, in November 23rd this year from the New England Journal on Comprehensive non-invasive fetal screening by deep trioexome sequencing, which I have no idea what that means, but it's not important to what I'm going to say. Um, fetal genetic diagnosis is pivotal in prenatal care. The development of non-invasive fetal tests using free cell DNA, which is what NIPT is, from a maternal blood sample has revolutionized prenatal screening. But its application has mainly been limited to chromosomal disorders owing to the low resolution available with existing screens chromosomal disorders being trisomy 21, 18, and 13. Um, they go on and say, to address these limitations, we developed a non-invasive prenatal screening using deep trioexome sequencing, which again, is beyond my ability to understand what that means at this point. I'm not sure that this is commercially available. I think this is a research paper, but it's just something that's coming. They're never going to stop trying to break, give you more and more tests. This comprehensive non-invasive method has a high sensitivity, that means positive when something is wrong, for detecting fetal single nucleotide variants, small insertions and deletions from, from cell-free DNA obtained from a maternal blood sample. In our study, which was only 36 women and their partners, the inclusion criteria were nuchal translucency measurement of at least five millimeters, I think up to about 3.5 at 11 and five sevenths to 13 and five sevenths weeks, is normal. A lot of people don't do the nuchal translucence anymore because it was part of the quad screen screening. And now with NIPT, it's sort of replaced it. Now the maternal fetal medicine doctors all recommend that not only should you get NIPT, but you should get nuchal translucency screening, which is like a 12 week ultrasound. Of course they recommend it. I'm not exactly sure how scientific it is, but obviously it's a revenue generator for them. And when they, they lost a lot of revenue when NIPT came out because people stopped doing this quad screen stuff. I mean, do you think, I mean, it seems like an extra step that maybe not is not necessary, right? I, I personally don't think it's necessary. Even I think with that, the positives, even with the positive oh, NIPT? No, once you have a positive NIPT, then further studies is necessary. But as a screening test, it's right. not necessary because they, they want the MFMs want you to do it even if your NIPT is normal. I know. But my question is, if it's positive, and you're going to probably do a um, CVS or an NIP, I mean, a amniocentesis at that point. Do you really need that ultrasound? Would you just do the ultrasound and not do the other ones? You wouldn't, right? Just do the ultrasound, not do the other what's? Like amniocentesis. No, no. Ultrasound is yeah. not 
a substitute for amnio yeah. or CVS. So I'm like, why do it? I don't know. Thank you, why do thank you Bliss. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So, well, I, again, I tell my clients just like necessary. Aaron wanted, just like Aaron would just wanted to know the sex. Some people want to do everything that they can, yeah, and yeah. And, and everything, and they want to know everything. And I understand that yeah. as long as they're aware of the potential risks of ultrasound, which we've talked about, and of the risks of false information or false positives, yeah, and that can lead that whole down that whole rabbit hole of like we talked about before, you know. Don't think about elephants. Well, now you have something that's abnormal and how much more testing is that going to lead to? And how often does it lead to something that's really abnormal that you wouldn't have picked up anyway down the road? Right. So, I mean, early diagnosis is important because it, if you are going to terminate because there is something wrong, the earlier you do it, the better it is for the mom. Right? Which is a great point to make that the opposite is also true. So when you're asking and getting this information, think about what you're going to do with the information that you receive. If it's not something that you think you would terminate for, um, what do would it make your pregnancy feel better knowing this information? Or would you rather know this information after? And those are questions for yourself to be able to ask and answer. Um, it's a very personal decision and it's not for anyone else to determine but you don't necessarily have to do all these tests if you don't think that you're going to change the course of how you would care for yourself or your baby. Um, or uh, you think it's going to make you feel more stressed during your pregnancy. So something it's, and that's a legitimate reason, individualized reason for you to decide that you may not want to do any of this testing and that's okay too. Mic drop. That makes it, that would make a good reel what you just said. Cause that, that was the mo probably the most important thing of all is if you're going to, if it doesn't, you're going to change your management any, then we always talk about don't do a test. Why do a test if it's not going to change your management? So there are, the, and it's a very, very personal decision. Absolutely. Thanks for okay. We're, we're almost done. Non-invasive prenatal screening using deep trioexome sequencing analysis includes parental samples, which enables the option of carrier screening. So if you do this, this thing that they're proposing, you can also do the carrier screening on the parents at the same time to identify pregnancies that are high risk for recessive disorders. So I'm going to need to get more of this, but again, I just wanted to, um, oh, there's a little bit more here. Hang on. Uh, confirmation of the presence of a maternally inherited variant in the, in the fetus would necessitate invasive testing, which is a horrible term, by the way, but is uh, an amnio or CVS. All right. And finally, Non-invasive prenatal screening using deep trioexome sequencing provides a means to screen non-invasively and comprehensively for a wide range of genetic disorders without posing a risk to the fetus or the mother. The integration of non-invasive prenatal screening with deep trioexome sequencing into routine prenatal care in conjunction with fetal ultrasonographic screening, ultrasonographic screening would provide an opportunity to improve early detection rates, reduce the number of invasive procedures, and facilitate prompt intervention. So, you know, I don't know if it's going to change people for the people that aren't, like you just said, aren't going to change their management any anyway. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is commercially available, as I said, and I have no idea what it's going to cost. So it's just putting it out there. But because of Dr. Lanneman's, uh post, I thought it was worth taking a deeper dive into what's coming and the fact that these screening tests, are, there's not just these simple screening tests and people just need to know this information, families so that they can make an informed decision. 
And the one last test is, is an old test that a lot of uh, families still get uh, because the insurance company or Medicaid doesn't offer NIPT testing, and that's the quad screen. So the quad screen is that it happens between 15 and 22 weeks. It doesn't diagnose conditions. It just require it just imply that further testing is necessary. So it's a screening test with less specificity and less sensitivity than NIPT testing. So people ask, what is a quad screen? So a quad screen means there must be four things in it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Alpha fetoprotein, HCG level, estriol, and inhibin A. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to get into what I think. I don't think I, oh, I did. So let me get into that for real quickly. And it helps predict the trisomy 21, 18 and neural tube defects, which haven't been mentioned yet in the podcast, which is like spina bifida or, or, or similar defects or anencephaly or anything like that, picking it up very early. So lastly, uh, those four things are alpha fetoprotein. The fetus's liver produces alpha fetoprotein. High levels could mean the fetus has a neural tube defect or an abdominal wall anomaly like gastroschisis umphalocele. But it could also mean that your pregnancy is farther along than you thought, or that you might have twins. Uh, low AFP levels could mean that there's a higher risk of the baby having Down syndrome. So again, this is these are just redefining risk, leading you to down a path, which way to go. Do I, do I have normal quad screen? Do I need anything more done? Um, or is it abnormal? Should I have more done? Will it change what I want to do anyway? The uh, estriol level or unconjugated estriol, the fetus and the placenta produce this hormone, where AFP was produced by the fetal liver. This is produced by the fetus and the placenta. And low levels of this hormone indicate a higher risk of the baby being born with Down syndrome. HCG, everybody knows what HCG is. It's the pregnancy hormone. The placenta makes this hormone. And the levels that are higher than average could mean an increased risk of Down syndrome. And then inhibin A is made by your ovaries and the placenta, and they produce this protein. The risk of having a baby born with Down syndrome increases when inhibin A levels are higher than expected. So what they do is they take all these values, they put them into some algorithm, and they come out with a quad screen positive, quad screen negative. And then if it's positive, all that means is further testing needs to be done. I would say in my experience in the old days, a positive quad screen was often led to the fact that there's nothing really wrong, but there would be more concern about growth restriction and preterm labor and other problems down the road because they thought there was something wrong with the placenta. And so the women would then get a lot more surveillance. And I'm not sure it made a difference. I think probably there are articles that say it does. Uh, but again, it's becoming more moot as we're moving more toward the, the non-invasive prenatal test like NIPT. Okay, so it seems like um, the NIPT screens for Down syndrome already. Um, so for those parts of the quad screen, it's covered, but for the AFP, as you said, it wasn't mentioned before. So for one of our clients who really does wanna have as much information as possible, is there a way to test for AFP by yeah. itself they can they can draw that themselves or they can have that drawn or they can have a quad screen drawn anyway mm -hmm. and they can also um uh have ultrasound you know a detailed ultrasound is going to be pretty good to rule out 
neural tube defects or abdominal wall defects. But that's much later. That's at the structural scan, right? But I would tell you, Bliss, even at, you know, 12 to 14 weeks, um, you can see that. But yes, at, at the structural scan. The question, of course, is what are you going to do? And if you're somebody who would say, I, I don't want a baby that's perfect. And if I don't want, if the baby isn't perfect, I'm going to terminate that pregnancy. Then, yeah, then you should consider getting an early ultrasound done and and uh, having all these tests done. Yeah. And so the AFP can be done individually is what you're saying. Okay, cool. Yeah. Great. Right. I don't know if you can do it individually more or if it has to be part of a panel. I, I, I honestly don't know because I haven't drawn an AFP in a decade. I haven't drawn uh, it ever, but mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you for doing that. You're very welcome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, again, we could take these deep dives, you know, I, I feel like it really does educate me. And, mm-hmm. they, and get, again, more stuff to put in my garage. But that's what I can do about that. <laughs> um, I just want to, I want to end with this thing that I just saw this morning that my friend Pamela sent me about, about Zoom's new uh, uh, user agreement. I think I sent I think I sent it to you this morning. You know, mm-hmm. since we on Zoom and we do our webinars on Zoom and everybody uses Zoom, you know, apparently now that anything you put on Zoom is the property of Zoom. And they can actually edit it, do whatever they want to it. So they could take what we're saying and move it into something else and mix it out context. I don't know if that's actually what they will do, but I believe that that's probably what the user agreement allows them to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you see, did you watch last um, season of Black Mirror? No, I have only watched like three episodes of Black Mirror. Okay. So in the last season of Black Mirror, and I can't remember, um, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one that's actually, it's exactly about this. And it it kind of mimics like Netflix and the woman um, finds out that she, when she agreed to be able to like have this service that they had permission to be able to record anything they wanted. And so they edited a whole season of her life with actors and stuff, but it was basically like following her life. Exactly. Like all of the most embarrassing moments and everything was very interesting. So art mimics life. Right. So anyways, uh, yeah. Well, it's not going to stop me from saying anything I want to say, and it shouldn't stop anybody from saying what they want to say as long as it's true. And even if it's not true, but, yeah. You know. Yeah. So there we have it. There we have it. Yeah. What a hodgepodge today. We went yeah, all over the place. Yeah, and I didn't even get to stuff that we wanted to get to. You had two letters and I had uh that, okay. that thing from um Robin on it's breach. Okay. But- I have a baby, I have a baby that I believe was breach. I sent them to get an ultrasound. When they went for the ultrasound, the baby was transverse. So I think that baby is moving. I sent them to Dr. Elliot Berlin in LA to get a little bit of room. So they asked if they could come in today so that I could palpate that baby. So I'm going to head over there and see where this baby is. Yeah, I got to see your office last week. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. Have a great day. Everybody who's listening, again, um, thank you for your attention to us. Thank you for your dedication and loyalty. We really, I really do appreciate it and support our sponsors. Yeah, and don't forget about our webinar on January 18th at 5 p.m., bringing the home birth hesitant on board. Um, Share it, 
come on and visit with us. Um, we'll be doing a little bit of a lecture and then we do a question and answer. It's um, very informative. And how do they find that, Bliss? On our uh, website, which is Birthing Instincts Podcast. Um, and you can register there. Dot com. Dot <laughs> <laughs> com. Dot okay. com. Okay. All right. So, Bliss, say the, say the famous last words. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.